If you would turn in your Bibles, we will be in Ecclesiastes 12 today, so it's in the middle of my Bible, middle and to the left in my Bible. So it's Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. You've been in Proverbs for a while, I hear, so it's right after Proverbs. So we will be in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 and 14 today. So as you turn there, I want to ask a question. Um, What is the key to life? What is the key to life in this fallen world that is full of fleeting hopes, growing sorrows, vaporous pleasures, disappearing dreams, and lost hopes? Do you ever find yourself asking that question? What is the key to life? And how do people around us answer that question? They might say the key to life is to do good. The key to life is to be kind. The key to life is to get an education, to work hard, to love others, maybe pursue your dreams, um, do the best you can or do what's right. But is that really the key to life? Well, a few years ago, I came across the story of Tommy Caldwell. Now, Tommy is a decorated rock climber. Uh, During what he described as the darkest period in his life, he found himself facing that question, what is the key to life in a world that had really left him crushed? and shattered. So he did not know the answer. So he threw himself into the task in front of him, and it was an impossible task. He said, I'm going to free climb the, the Dawn Wall. I want to explain what the Dawn Wall is for you not rock climbers out there like myself. <clears throat> so the, 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 the first free climbing. Free climbing is to climb with safety equipment used only for safety. So you cannot use the safety equipment to help you on your climbing. Um, It's just there to catch you if you fall, which you will if you try to climb the Don Wall. And the Don Wall is a rock formation on the southeast face of El Cap in Yosemite National Park. It was long thought to be unclimbable due to its sheer uh, smoothness. Um, It has more difficult climbing pitches than any other big free wall climb ever established. So people had gone up the top, rappelled down, climbed pieces of it, but never in a continuous climb. And so just some stats, it's 3,000 feet, So most of us would have a hard time just hiking up 3,000 feet, myself included, but he's going to climb up 3,000 feet, and the slickness of the rock um, required them to climb in the winter instead of the summer, and at night instead of during the day, because that's when friction was best. So they're climbing with headlamps at night. And so he started in 2007. Tommy spent years mostly by himself studying, cleaning the rock surface, drilling bolt holes for his anchors, um, and he studied that wall. And two years later, he was joined by a guy named Kevin Jorgensen. Now, no one in the free climbing world was crazy enough to join Tommy, um, and so they said, you're crazy. You try that. Uh, But um, Kevin was a boulderer. He had never free climbed before. He said, I'll try. I'll, I'll go with you. So... They started laboring together on this wall. And uh, uh, Tommy had to teach Kevin everything Kevin knew about free climbing because he knew absolutely nothing. So they labored, and three years into this journey, they figured out what they thought was the potential passable route. Maybe it's possible if we do it here. So fast forward eight years later. Okay, after years of labor, five failed attempts. Now these attempts were days, weeks, months on the wall trying to do this in a continuous climb. And um, they tore ligaments, fractured ribs, and they finally succeeded in a 19-day climb. 
All right. So what is this connection between Tommy and our text today? Um, well, the question, what is the key to life in a broken world? It's a monumental question. Um, it might feel like an insurmountable, unscalable task to live a fruitful life in a fallen world. And um, how do we do that? How do we sur- uh, not just survive, but actually how do we thrive here where the Lord has placed us? And to answer that question, we need a guide. We need someone who's gone before us, who's studied the landscape of life. Um, we need someone who's willing to, just as Tommy did, he, Tommy obsessed, obsessed about climbing this wall. We need someone who's obsessed about searching for this key. And that is where actually our author of this text serves us today. Um, you see in Ecclesiastes 12, we're gonna encounter a preacher who has labored to help us scale the mountain of life. So I'm gonna read here from Ecclesiastes 12, verses nine and 14, and I want us to allow this preacher and his words to act as our guide today, all right? This preacher and his words. So Ecclesiastes 12, starting in verse nine. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I'd like to pray, and then we'll walk through this text together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would incline our hearts to hear from you today. Open our eyes that we might behold your wondrous things in your word. Would you teach us your ways Um, Would you satisfy us with your word and would you help this word be effective and fruitful in our lives today? Amen. So these verses in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14, are the epilogue of Ecclesiastes. They are written by our guide, and I think it's helpful to introduce us to him. So um, he describes himself as the preacher. In verse 9, he says, the preacher. And so if you were to flip back, in your Bible to chapter one, he describes and introduces us to himself this way. He says, I am the son of David, the king in Israel. I, the preacher, this is verse 12 of chapter one, have been king over Israel in all time. So the word preacher is the Hebrew word koheleth, which means the convener, the collector, the assembler. So he is collecting not only God's people, but he's been collecting God's word to bring God's word to God's people. And the only king that fits this profile in, um, is this profile of king in Jerusalem over Israel is Solomon. But as our preacher has chosen to remain anonymous in his own writings, I'm simply gonna refer to him as our preacher or our guide today. So, and as our guide, he's been a seasoned 
guide. He's a trustworthy guide. He has labored. We don't have time, or we haven't had time, although I did hear that you as a church walked through Ecclesiastes a few years ago, but um, he, in his endeavor to serve his audience, he's been laboring in the labyrinth of life, and at each dead end, he's been lifting up to the people of God the contrast between the worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, and he's been giving them a divine perspective, trying to say, how do you live fruitfully and, um, under the sun? And uh, in this epilogue, we have what many commentators have called the key to unlocking the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's tricky of him to put it at the end of his sermon, but he, he does that. And so today, we're, my goal is that you would leave today with the key to unlocking Ecclesiastes, and also, I think it's a key to unlocking life for us. So let's, um, what is that key? What is that key? Well, I'm going to give it to you, um, but in one sentence, but it's a long sentence, so um, apologize. And uh, we will re- be repeating this as we go. So if you don't get it the first time, it's okay. It's gonna be unfolding as we go today. So the key to life is this. This is what our preacher would say to us. He says, it would be to labor to delight in truth given to guide our fearful obedience to God and prepare us to meet God. So the key to life is to labor to delight in truth given to guide our fearful obedience to God and prepare us to meet God. So we will be unpacking that together. So um, first aspect of that key, the key to life is to labor to delight in truth. If you look at verses nine and 10, we enter the study of our preacher. We enter the study of our preacher and I'm gonna read them again. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing, and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So this key in these verses, in verse nine, is revealed on the backdrop of these words which reverberate through Ecclesiastes. If you look at one verse back, so 12.8, it reads this. Vanities of vanities, says a preacher, all is vanity. and that is actually a bookend in the book of a, a bookend in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, this word vanity means life is a mist. It's a vapor, vaporous. It's a breath. It's fleeting. It's elusive. And the book opens with that. So we should be glad that the preacher doesn't stop there. He starts there. He goes to twelve eight, and he says life is vain. He doesn't stop there though. And so he says, okay, in this vain world where all is vaporous, where life is fleeting, elusive, comes and is gone, what is the solution? Do you give up? No, he labors to study, to delight, to share. So we see this, the words of our text that says he weighed God's word, he studied, he arranged with great care. He's unafraid of heavy lifting in the pursuit of wisdom. And this language is used all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where he is applying, he is seeking, he is searching out, he is perceiving, laying hold of, considering, um, so that he might bring God's truth to God's people. Um, So uh, if you see here, the preachers, good preachers, use delightful truths to tether us to God's word. Um, They use delightful truths actually from God's word, sorry, to tether us to divine realities that keep us anchored and keep us from drifting out at sea. Uh, My wife and I enjoy watching, uh, we enjoy eating food, but we enjoy also watching food shows. 
And I know this is, I've, been, I've heard you are the food church, that's what I've heard. Um, so you enjoy food, but a good chef, what a chef does um, is they make uh, not just something that tastes good, but something that looks good aesthetically, that, that smells good, that's arranged good, that, that the textures matter, the, the, the dish is arranged in a certain way with everything to complement the experience. And here we see that this preacher who is laboring to help the people delight in God's truth, he is um, building a spiritual plate of food to serve his congregation. He goes to the kitchen of God's word and he he knows that man does not live um, on bread alone, but on the very word of God. And so he goes to the kitchen of God's word and he seeks to, to seek and savor God's truth. And he knows that he needs to do this because um, the, God's truth must be savored in pub, private before it goes public. If you watch these chef shows, you see the chef, they're always tasting things. I was like, oh, is this good? Oh, no, it's no, I need more salt or I need more whatever. So he is going, he is tasting God's word and he is bringing it to God's people. And he does this because he agrees with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which reads that the chief end of man is what? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he labors this way because he also agrees with the psalmist, Psalms 30, uh, Psalm 37, 23 through 24, reads this way. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. So he labors for the affections of God's people because he knows our hearts. And he's familiar with the reality that we can go through the motions We can attend church, we can read our Bible, we can pray, and yet our hearts can be unaffected by and and pursue lesser affections. And so he he is laboring for the affections of God's people. So Grace Church, it's important that we should listen up and take heed and realize that your faithfulness and your fruitfulness in life can all be traced back to the words that you treasure. Your faithfulness and your fruitfulness can all be traced back to what you savor, what you seek after, what you feed on. And, and this is why I have um, just inter- interacting with your pastoral team and knowing Devin. I am so, and, and with you as a congregation, you are people that savor God's word. You are people that delight in the truth of God. That is very evident. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes would give a hearty amen to you all. Now, so some questions to ask ourselves as we encounter this truth and this key to life is, what was the last truth of God that you truly treasured, that you rolled around in the mouth of your mind and you savored? And do you know how we know if we treasure something? We, we share it with someone. All right, so uh, we know that we truly treasure something when we take that truth or whatever it is and we go and tell someone about it. So who, who what truth have you shavered, uh, savored? Hmm. What truth have you savored? And, we'll, and how have you shared that with someone? So a simple way to just apply this to our life is to, to share a meal together with friends and family and just say, what truths from God's word are you treasuring today? Or what truth in kids' catechism did you encounter today that was delightfully something to treasure? Right? And, then, and then share. be prepared to share that together. Now, uh, while this key gives us pause to self-reflect, it also should give us pause for thanksgiving. And uh, as I was thinking about 
um, we are the fruit and effect of faithful pastors. Um, and if we pause and reflect for a moment on the men that God has used to help us marvel at his work in Christ, it's a staggering gift, the debt we owe. And uh, so what preachers have God used in your life to help you see and save the gospel? And while you don't know me well, we do share a lot of the same heroes in the faith. And uh, my wife and I were recently just reflecting on the fruit and effect and really the immeasurable impact um, that being in Louisville for the past 10 years has had on our life and our marriage and our family. Um, we are forever changed by the fruit of God's word being faithfully preached. And I'm confident that this is true of many of you here today. And so we should thank God for those that have labored in God's word for the people of God. And then we should also be thankful for the, the people of God. That uh, the, a pastor's job is to equip the people of God to do the ministry of God. And so who are the everyday people of God that have been equipped by faithful preaching to then bring God's truth into your life? The, the parents, there are grandparents here that have done that so well. So the parents, the grandparents, the faithful friends, the trusted counselors, we should just thank God for the kindness to us in them. So uh, the preacher has taken us to a study. He said the key to life is to delight in truth. Now the second aspect of this key that evolves before us, he takes us to another place. He takes us from his study to his workshop. So in verses 11 and 12, we go to his workshop and he says, the key to life is to labor to delight in truth given to guide. So in verse 11, it says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected saying. They're given by one shepherd. We might ask, why do we need guides? Well, the hymn writer Robert Robinson knows the best. I don't think I knew, uh, you might not know who this is, but you'll recognize these words. He wrote these words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So the shepherd knows that we are prone to wander and God's word is meant to function in our lives in a very specific way. It's supposed to be like goads and nails. We know what nails are, but uh, no one has a goad in their shed. At least uh, there may be a one or two of you. <laughs> but a goad is a, is, is a, long, it's a long object, a long stick, with a, with a poker on the end of it. And it's meant to poke and prod cattle in the right direction. So we see that God's word is meant to, to poke us. It's meant to, to prod us and it's meant to move us. We have a, a, a dog and we put a shot collar on the dog. And it's not to hurt the dog, but it's to send the dog a signal that come here, don't go there. All right, so that's probably the modern day equivalent shot collar, we'll see. <laughs> We'll see if the preacher of Ecclesiastes, what he thinks about that. But um, so God's word is meant to, to, to poke at us, to prod us, to move us in a certain direction. It's the language, it says nails. So it's meant to secure, to be, to fix. It's, it's sharp, it pricks us. It's meant to stick in us. So good pre pre preaching, what it does is it meant to poke or prod God's people to God-glorifying action. Good preaching, which you guys sit under week in, uh, um, week in, or whatever, 
every week you sit under faithful preaching and your preachers are giving you hammers and they're giving you nails that are meant to strike God's truth into your heart and to fix it into your souls. And that's what God's, how God's word is meant to function in our lives. And what's interesting about this text is it shows us that it's not actually the preacher that is holding that hammer and that nails, but it's actually that goat is wielded by a shepherd. The shepherd, God who's been, um, comes into view at different times throughout Ecclesiastes, he comes very near to us in this text and it says, um, they are given by one shepherd. So he, this shepherd, is the ultimate wielder of divine truth. This, this shepherd is the ultimate one that's poking and prodding and guiding God's people. So have you ever felt the uncomfortable prodding of God's word? Maybe this week, maybe yesterday, maybe today, it's prodded you, poked at you. And there's a temptation to think that that is discouraging. <laughs> um, like, that hurt. But in reality, this is your shepherd coming near to you and engaging with you and your circumstances in your heart and saying, I care for you. I value you, and I want you to be safe and secure in my word and to be guided away from things that are dangerous. And so we should be comforted whenever we feel the, con the conviction poking and prodding of God's word and take joy in it. And why do we need um, these guides? Well, um, they're meant, they're, God's word is meant to guide us. And the, the, they come with a warning label, though. Verse 12 says, My son, the preacher now change his languages and he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So he says, be careful, watch out for knockoffs. There are faulty guides everywhere you look. And his desire is be careful of these knockoffs, these faulty guides, because they are wearying. Um, they do not, pro they promise help, but they only give wearying burdens. And uh, our guide, his, the language shifts here to what you've been hearing in Proverbs. He says, my son. So he's now addressing his children, and he wants to spare them. And he says, be careful, my son, what you set before your eyes, he might say. Don't look um, where our shepherd says not to look. Be careful, my son, where you go for counsel. Don't seek counsels, counsel, don't seek out counselors who do not delight in um, your shepherd's words. Be careful, my son and my children, who you listen to and who you study. Don't listen and study to things that displease your shepherd. Now, historically, when you needed guidance for the hundreds of years and thousands of years, what would you do? You'd go to someone. You'd ask for guidance. Nowadays, you pick up your phone, you uh, surf through the internet, you might ask Siri, how do I do this? And uh, Google, what do I do here? Chat GPT, what do I do here? And there's value in many different, um, there is general grace out there for, for um, truth that can be found. But we have to always ask ourselves, where we're going for guidance, does it line up with God's word? And in our world, we are just inundated with a, just, just guides everywhere. Um, in our digital age, with one click of a button, almost any message, good or bad, can go viral. Everywhere we look, we find ourselves breathing in ideas. You open up the newspaper, 
Um, if you still get the newspaper, you scroll through the headlines, you turn on the radio, you listen to music, you read a book, you watch TV, you scroll through social media. We're breathing in ideas and those ideas are pregnant with guidance. They, they're seeking to affix themselves in our minds and they're promising rest and hope. But our preacher reminds us that when they deviate from God's word, um, they deliver only one thing and that is weariness. And so um, he wants us to be careful and to take comfort. Take comfort that God's word really is all that we need. It is sufficient amidst the noise and confusion of our information-soaked world. And so, so the preacher, in this unfolding of the key to life, he's, we've moved from his study, we've moved to his workshop. Now, where will he take us next? Well, you might say um, he's going to mount a pulpit now and he's gonna preach to us in these next verses. So, the third aspect of the key to life, it's been building, it's laboring to delight in truth given to guide. To guide what? To guide our fearful obedience to God. Verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. All has been heard. The end of the matter. Do you feel attention? Now what? That this is what. Listen in. This is the most vital aspect of living and where the preacher lands the plane of application. Um, nothing is more important than this. Fear God and obey God. So in other words, we are called to live in fearful obedience to God. So what do I mean by fearful obedience? I wanna unpack those words for us today. So we need a, a biblical understanding of the word fear. Um, our modern understanding of fear is really one-dimensional. It's paper thin. It, it frames fear purely in a negative sense. Like, you fear this, this is what you should flee. So only in the negative sense. Well, a biblical understanding of fear is it's robust, it's dense, it has weight to it, and it frames fear both in what to flee, but what to seek after, who to follow after. So Sinclair Ferguson has a quote on the fear of the Lord. I'm gonna read it to you, and it's very helpful. He says this, the fear of the Lord is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. I'm gonna read that again. The fear of the Lord is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe that fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. Do you feel the denseness of that definition? Do you feel its delightful weightiness? Because to fear God requires that we know God, who he is and what he's done. And it's not a fear that drives us away, but it's a fear that draws us to him. And so the author of Ecclesiastes, I thought, well, if the fear of God comes from the knowledge of God, we could open up our Bible and turn anywhere and see, okay, what does this reveal about our God, which is how we should read our Bibles. But I thought, well, if I'm confined myself to Ecclesiastes, what he has been preaching. I'm gonna pick one section from Ecclesiastes 3, and I'm gonna say, okay, what? I'll lift this up over us and say, what does this reveal about this God that is to be feared? So Ecclesiastes 3 is where I'm gonna turn for a brief second, and then we'll come back. But Ecclesiastes 3, um, I'm gonna read these a few verses, and we're just going to explore what do these verses reveal about the God that is to be feared? So Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, reads this way. He, God, 
has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So here, God's work is a beautiful work. Take a look at all that is beautiful, dear, and sacred in this world and realize who's the author of it all? Our God is. My family loves to do nature study we love to go out in, into God's creation and enjoy God's creation. So as we do nature study, we see that this, this couldn't happen by chance. Uh, one, one thing that continually blows my mind are turtles. They're amazing. And, and, and the horse's nose. When you touch a horse's nose, it's like this is it's so soft, and yet it's used for all this rough thing. It's like there's, there's no way that could happen <laughs> by chance. And as you go out and as we do nature study, as we see a seed budding and growing into a flower and it blooming and it flourishing and it's setting out its fragrance and, and fitting, we see that in all seasons that God designs and embed, embeds everything with beauty. So we should study, we should marvel, and we should stand in awe and fear the God who makes everything beautiful. And then we also, in verse 11, we see that God's work is unsearchable. It says God has put eternity into man's hearts. So we long to be, uh, we have this, this, this thinking that we, this world isn't all there is. And we long to not only, not only think beyond this life, but we long to know beyond this life. And what we see in this text is that God's work is unsearchable. What we see and what we know about God is nothing compared to his vast work in eternity past through the present and the future. Do you realize that what we have come to know and treasure about God is one small drop in the ocean of God's magnificent work? Um, we will spend all eternity just getting a couple drops <laughs> of the mag, I mean, just, just drinking in the magnificent beauty of God's work. If God were entirely comprehensible, he would not be God. So rejoice, friends, in the depth of his majesty and splendor. They are unplumbable. And while we can comprehend it in part, it's incomprehensible in its majestic scope. So we should rejoice and tremble in this. Fear the God whose work is unsearchable. And then in 12 and 13 of, of Ecclesiastes 3, um, we see other aspects of this God. And Ecclesiastes 3, 12, and 13, we often read it in light of ourselves, but I want us to think about it in light of who our God is. So it says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And so while our work is to eat and drink and be joyful, it's a responsive work. So we need to trace our work back to our God. And God is a gracious and generous God. He gives life and labor and wisdom and joy and pleasure and toil all to be stewarded and delighted for the glory of God. So hold a baby, that's a gift from God. Smoke pork, gift from God, <laughs> amen. So uh, labor at work, that's a gift from God. So receive these as undeserved gifts and stand in reverential gratefulness to the God who is a generous God. And then uh, Ecclesiastes 3.14, says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. 
God has done it. So the people should fear before him. So God is the one whose work is internal. We live in a world where everybody thinks that my work will somehow last forever, but in a blink of an eye, they're forgotten. The greatest minds are what? They're discovered hundreds of years later because they were forgotten. <laughs> and there was one, one, only one, whose work will last for all eternity. So our work is, um, God's work is eternal, our work is ephemeral. God's work is timeless, your work is temporal. God's work remains forever, your work is fleeting and fade. So humble yourself, you are not God, this is a good thing. Let's stand in awe of the God whose work endures forever. This is a God to be feared. So friends, what, what happens as we study the God that is to be feared? Well, our fears move us someplace. They move us to obedience. That's why I say fearful obedience, because what you fear will move you. And the question is, where will they take you? Proverbs 3, um, this is a familiar text to you as a church, Proverbs 3, 7, and 8, the, the, um, the author of Proverbs says this to his son. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The fear of the Lord, it leads us to joyful obedience. It leads us in the language of that text of Proverbs to turn away from evil and to turn to your God who promises what? Healing, nourishment, refreshment. If you're anything else, it will crush you. It will bring wounds and sickness, but fear God, and it will bring life and healing and joy. Lock eyes with him, fear him alone, the one the, who has ultimate power and authority in, in the universe, who could crush you at any moment, but chose to be crushed for you. Be drawn to him, and allow him to drive lesser fears from you. All right, so we're making our way through this. Um, We've moved from the study to the workshop to the pulpit, and now the text ends in a somewhat surprising place. It ends in a courtroom before a judge. What are we doing here? A few years ago, I came home and I was asking my wife what she was reading. She said, oh, I'm reading this book. It's called The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, it's how to free yourself and your family from a lifetime of clutter. All right, so the, the premise of this secular book is to live life with the end in view. To live life with the end in view. Um, and the only way they knew how to do it was to flee yourself from clutter. All right, the Bible has better answers. And the book of Ecclesiastes is seeking to do the same thing. It's trying to help us live life with the end in view and be prepared for God's final judgment. So the last point here and this progressive exploring of the key to life, it's to labor to delight in truth, given to guide our fearful obedience to God and prepare us to meet God. Verse 14 of back in chapter 12, reads this way. Sorry, yeah, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The key to life in a fallen world means facing into this reality. One day you will find yourself face to face with God. You will meet a creator and you will have to answer to him. Nothing will be hidden. It says every secret thing, that should terrify us, will be laid before our God. We have to ask ourselves, are we ready for that? Here's what will happen when we meet 
God. We will recognize the immense gulf between us and our God, between our best efforts and God's righteous requirements. With every deed, when every deed is judged and every secret thing laid bare, we will become face to face with the reality that we have fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve the just wrath of God. So the final judgment, we're gonna see painfully clear that our best efforts to delight rightly um, in God's word have, have fallen short. We've been led astray by lesser affections. That our best efforts to be guided by God's words are we're half-hearted. We've often turned away and listened to false guides. That our best efforts to fearfully obey are insufficient. We've often allowed lesser things to displace our God. So how can our guide, our preacher, help us today? Remember Tommy at the start of our, our time together, Tommy the rock climber. Um, he was a guide to his fellow climber, Kevin. And there's a part of the story I haven't told you yet. So there was one particular patch on the wall called Pitch 15. And when they, Kevin and Tommy, um, started their record-breaking climb in 2015, they had spent over 100 days on this certain pitch, um, over 1,000 attempts, and had never completed it. It was deemed in unclimbable, impossible. Um, so they labored in 2015, and f- miraculously, Tommy was able to complete it. Um, but Kevin struggled, not just a couple times, but for days on that wall. Um, Tommy stayed and he would coach and he'd give Kevin guidance and say, do this, do that, do this, do that, but he couldn't, with the rules of free climbing, help his friend. He had to watch Kevin fail. He could only give, his guidance could only go so far, so eventually Tommy said, well, I've completed the hardest part, I've gotta go on. So imagine being Kevin. Your fingers are bloody, you've been trying to climb this wall, you are having to watch your friend and your guide, the one who's trained you, leave you as you are stuck on pitch 15. Well, Kevin was on his own. Kevin needed more than a guide. He needed strength that he couldn't summon, something that was beyond skill and effort. At the close of our text, we find ourselves feeling grateful for our guide in Ecclesiastes but recognizing that like Kevin, we need way more than just a guide because our guide has shown us the high calling of the Christian life to delight rightly, the high calling of the Christian life to be guided rightly, the high calling to fearfully obey, but in doing so, each one of us, we should come away feeling our inadequacy. We don't just need a guide, we need a savior. And that's where um, in our story, it deviates slightly from the illustration of Kevin because somehow Kevin was able after days to to summon the will and the skill to overcome pitch 15 and catch up with Tommy. But no matter how much will and effort you press into the Christian life, nothing will overcome the sheer magnitude of our sin against our God. We need more than a, a guide, we need a God. The one and only God to come and save us. And that is where, friends, where we meet our Savior in this text. You see, in Christ we meet a guide who doesn't just show us how to truly live and then wait for us to catch up. We meet a, a, guy, a, a God who came and lived a perfect life for us. 
Christ delighted in the word and will of the, his father. Isaiah eleven three describes Christ this way. It says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So every breath and every step he took was joyfully guided by the word and promises of God. Isaiah 53, four through six, shows where, fueled by the delight of the fear of the Lord, where it led our Savior. Isaiah 53, four through six, I'm gonna read it. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So friends, be captivated by these truths. Be nourished by these truths. Do you have a grief? Allow Jesus to bear it. Do you have a sorrow? Christ delight to carry it. Feeling crushed by your sin? Allow him to be crushed for you. Do you lack peace? Look to the God of peace. Are you walking wounded and needing healing? Look to his wounds for life. Have you gone astray? Turn to him and let him lead you home. Treasure these truths of flesh. Believe in them, be guided by them. Let them prod and provoke you to treasure Christ and to seek to live like Christ. Drive them into your heart. Here is a scripture. Psalms 130, 3-4 says this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is a fear that draws us to God. Fix this truth on your mind. When God looked across time, and mark the sins of mankind, there was no one left standing but Christ alone. And the staggering reality is that Christ didn't remain standing, but he set his face to Calvary, and he walked towards that cross, and he purchased forgiveness by hanging on a cross for all who would trust in him. So because of Christ, we who were once far off were foe, are now family. Because of Christ, we can stand clothed in the righteousness before God, our Heavenly Father. So delight in this truth. Be guided by these truths. Let, let these truths drive us to fearful obedience into response to what Christ has done for you, and they will prepare us to meet our God. Praise be to God for this undeserved gift. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are good. Thank you, Lord, for Christ who stood in our place for us. Thank you for the forgiveness that is purchased for us through Christ. May we delight in this truth today. Amen.